My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm really excited to be joined by Josh. Josh, thank you so much for being here in the Just a Mom studio to have a conversation about your journey. Yeah, thank you, Susie. I really appreciate you having me. So my friend Tony actually connected us. I didn't know Josh until a few minutes ago. We had a phone conversation a few weeks ago, and Tony met Josh and said, Susie, you've got to talk to this guy. He has a really compelling story. So I'm thankful to my friend Tony. So a little shout out to her uh, for introducing us and for being the instigator of this conversation happening. Yeah, and and interestingly, I had just met her in that space. And she connected me right after I met her. Pretty pretty crazy how that I all know, works out. I know. So I think our listeners are really going to learn a lot from your story. I know I am going to learn a lot. I know a little bit about it, but not a lot of details. So if we'll just get started and I'll just ask you to get us going by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family. Yeah, sure. So I'm actually a triathlon coach and athlete and speaker. I have two uh, dogs, two kids, and one wife. <laughs> Those <laughs> all, dogs are important. I know, right? All at home, and um, kids are a little bit older now, which is kind of a neat, a neat space to be in. Um, yeah, so we're we're back. We're in Kansas City, and been here um, all of our lives. Pretty, pretty, pretty fortunate to be here, and it's it's really cool to be having this conversation. I think right now as as a coach as an influencer of of other people inspiring hopefully and lighting people's lives sometimes i feel like it's it's hard to be in the darkness and be able to live authentically as oftentimes it kind of takes over and whenever we're struggling with mental health whenever that is something that is is a part of your life and uh, it'll be really nice to have a conversation around the inner workings of that today I appreciate that you realize you have a an influencing platform, and I think that that's really important that you know that, and that's how my friend Tony met you um, in an indirect way, but that you are able to use that platform to shed light on the mental health topic as well. Oh my gosh, yeah, and share, uh, shining the light on the difficult topics, I think that is absolutely the 100% 100% the, the idea behind casting away uh, darkness in a place where it can be overwhelming. Absolutely. Josh, if you would please start by telling us a little bit about how your mental health issues first started. Sure. If I, if I look back throughout my entire life, uh, suicide ideation, depression, anxiety, which I've just now discovered is a big part of, of influencing what, what I feel like I go through. It's been a part of my life since I can remember, quite honestly. And uh, traumatic childhood and 
things that and my dad was an alcoholic and a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of which I blocked out throughout most of my life. I've had conversations with other family members recently remembering a lot of things that I had forgotten. So complex PTSD would be the clinical definition of kind of what that struggle has been for me. And it, it really created uh, an environment and uh, the the backdrop of, of things that I had to try to figure out myself. And, you know, my dad was a psychologist, uh, clinical psychologist in substance abuse that was using substances. So um, when we started looking for ways when I was 13, 14, when I was, when they noticed that something might be, you know, hurting me or something was, was quote unquote, I don't, I want to say the word wrong. There's nothing wrong with mental health. I want to make that very, very clear. And I think that's one of the biggest stigmas is like, what's wrong with you? What's going on with you? Yes. So when we were, let's let's put it this way, when they were trying to help and, and find healing, the counseling was, was very challenging as my dad was a psychiatrist, psycho- a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, a psychologist. And he hooked me up with a psychiatrist that was part of his own practice, which almost was more damaging than it, it needed to be. And it was hurt, like more damaging than it was helpful. In what way? Well, because it was part of his own practice. And so the connection just, I don't know. I, I was misdiagnosed young, and it kind of followed me into my twenties. Okay. And so I, I have, and had, and still have, a lot of trepidation and a lot of mistrust in the system, as it, it's been challenging for me, very, very challenging. So, I started by going on a couple of antidepressants, and some of them were just things that my dad had found or things that he wanted to try. And then over the years, it got worse and worse. So as, as a 14-year-old, I kind of started cutting on myself. And uh, then that kind of turned into you know, more drugs. And then I kind of cleared that up over time. And then I, I made a very, very uh, strong and, thank goodness, unsuccessful attempt at my own life when I was 16, taking my car 70 miles an hour into a tree. And um, after that... Uh, I decided I wanted to live, and part of that story is there was a gentleman that during that wreck uh, and during that when I hit the tree, I couldn't figure out why I didn't die. I didn't have my seatbelt on. Um, I had pretty much ensured that it was going to happen through a variety of different things, and uh, I even started to run afterwards. I got out of the car pretty much unscathed. It was unbelievable. Wow. And it was actually at 435 at Medcalf mm. down, down the road uh, when I was 16 years old. And yeah, I was just done with life. And so I survived and couldn't believe that I survived. It was pretty much walked away with a couple of, you know, broken bones and that kind of stuff. Anyhow, during that time, I was, could not believe that I, that I didn't die, right? So I started running and trying to get away from everything because I was bound and determined that that was going to be the end of my life. And somebody stopped me when I was trying to jump a tree and I said, why didn't I die when I died? And he looked me in the eye and he said, because God has a special plan for you. So I believe that. And I, when I, at the age of 16, I decided that I had a purpose. And then I just needed to, you know, hold on for that. Um, and this was a stranger that yes. you encountered? Uh, this is a stranger. It was quite unbelievable. And yeah, the... the yeah, the gentleman, I had never seen him before in my life, never saw him again. Really? He had um, 
I don't even really remember too much what he looks like. <laughs> oh, wow. I tried to find him afterwards, and there was, I looked at the police reports to try to figure out who this guy, who this guy was and call him or get his address. He didn't have a name. He didn't, or our last name. He didn't have a phone number. He didn't have an address. Just the first name was Christian, and that's it. It was quite remarkable. Oh, wow. Yeah. Immediately following the accident, when you encountered this man, was it all of a sudden you thought, okay, I do want to live, there is a purpose in my life, or did it take you a while to get there? That's a great question. So I immediately felt like this was no accident, that I was still here. And however, that's the thing, is it's not like the feelings go away. Right. It's not as if the disease is is cleared. I'm still at home. I'm still living with my my father. I'm still living in an environment where it's super tumultuous and trauma continues. And even uh, a week later, it was probably one of the most awful things that ever happened with him. I mean, I don't mind sharing it. We were driving to um, either my first or second therapy um, appointments, and he was driving me there. And we were going to meet meet this gentleman, and he started laying into me about all the things that I did wrong, and like, how could you do this to yourself? How could you do this to your mom? How could you do this to me? Look what you did to your car. And I started crying. Like, I can't believe, you know, of course you're crying. You better be sad. I was just like ripped into me. And like that, so, so it's not as if things just got immediately better. Wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine. And he was a psychologist himself. Yeah. The pain that must have been associated yeah. with that is hard to even wrap my brain around. But thank you, thank you for witnessing that and um, kind of validating that. It, it was very, very challenging and hurtful and continues to impact me to sure. this day. So the, the challenge then was and is multifaceted in that um, there's clearly a chemical imbalance associated with a lot of these, these things. And then there's also the, the psychological and environmental um, factors in that. So my dad has since passed away, and he wasn't a horrible person. It was, you know, even when he passed, he's like, it was my dad. He can still be sad about that. Sure. And, um, you know, I, I kind of was able to talk to him a little bit about some of the things, and I think that's the most healing aspect, not to go back and be like, I can't believe you did this to me. Just like, Dad, this hurt. When you did this, like my heart closed in a way that is never going to be repaired, and I don't understand this, and I need you to know that that was not okay. Like, that can be very, very healing, and it's not necessarily – the idea of trying to make have him make amends it's me make amends for the fact that of course that hurt and that took right. that took actually years and years of therapy to even come to the idea that oh my gosh this wasn't my fault no. like oh my gosh it's not it's not that there's something wrong with me no you know what i mean right that was in my early 20s mm. yeah how did he respond when yeah. you said that to him well um he actually gave me the name of what he was doing. So he said, I don't remember what it was called. It was a fancy, fancy idea of projection of his feelings of who he was onto me. So in some ways it felt dismissive. In some ways it felt um, kind of heard. 
I think what he was trying to do is say he was, I mean, he said, I'm sorry in his own way. And, but it's still like, you know, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that um, the interesting aspect, I believe, of, of like what I deal with and still deal with to this day, the suicide ideation, depression, anxiety is kind of what I've labeled them. Not that they need a label is that um, they're so complex in the way that they manifest. And like, I'm very, very hyper aware of what's going on around me. And I was triggered um, later, uh, about two years ago, by an incident that has kind of turned everything upside down again in, in a completely different way. So back backing up just a touch, through all of this, it always has been my purpose to to shed this to light around it and to share the story. You know, when we we I just uh, met Susie downstairs and we're walking up, and I told her that uh, the biggest thing we can do is be vulnerable because it doesn't allow that power to take over the heart, the mind space, the soul. Because that's that's what it feels like. Is sometimes right. I can't share this with anybody because nobody else could be going through this thing. You know, I'm actually a three-time world record holder across, you know, ultra cycling. And I've been to Ironman World Championships and I coach a variety of different athletes, high caliber people that, you know, do incredible things. And I'm struggling every single day. And I think we're all struggling in some way. And the more that we can share that and share that humanity and share that idea that we're not alone in it, it doesn't feel quite as overwhelming sometimes but yeah going back to the day in the car with your dad when he was driving you to therapy after you had tried to take your own life and he said all those things to you what was it like going into that therapy session after that one of the things that I did um, growing up is I would dissociate whenever uh, my dad would would have his his yelling fits and things of that nature. So this was not uncommon. So one of the hard things I think about when you're living with an alcoholic or anybody that has a substance abuse is that it, it affects everyone around you. Um, so I never knew what I was going to get with him. So sometimes I'd come home and I would be yelled at for for something that I felt like I did well. And other times I'd be praised for something that I feel like I screwed up. Um, so like one time I cut my thumb open and he was okay with and I couldn't believe it. I thought he was just going to berate me. And then another time I was excited to share a story about a rainbow. And I, in fact, all I did is yell at me until I cried. And my sister remembers that at an early age, maybe we call it seven or eight, that I he would yell until I cry and he'd yell at me for crying and then put blame on me for things that I may or may not have done. And then um, at some point I started to dissociate. So what that means for me is I would go completely blank and it's a productive mechanism that I know, you know, it's a trauma response. And what, what that does is it allows me to kind of protect myself emotionally from what's going on. A lot of people that go through trauma will dissociate in some way. Some people will fight, so fight or flight. Some people will flee. Some people will fawn. And oftentimes, dissociation allows you to escape that. And the reason I say all of that is that's what I did, mm -hmm. is after that, I was absolutely ripped apart in like, the most vulnerable spot. And 
it was it was quite awful and it was as awful as the feelings I felt the day that I tried to end my own life and like instead of celebrating the fact that I'm here I'm getting berated over the things that don't matter and so um I pretty much kind of blocked him from that point forward like he had no more access to be able to do that to me um at that age I just decided that that was over Uh you just flipped a switch basically uh in your brain that Mm -hmm. said not even Mm -hmm. listening yep so I I do remember going to that therapy session he's like we had an altercation oh what do you say we had a (laughs) we had a little bit of an issue driving in like he took over and narrated it so that way he would be in control over the the delivery of it yeah that was really really challenging was your time spent with that therapist that he chose for you very successful after that uh no it was not and i mean there's some things that he asked me i still remember kind of to this day and other things i just i don't really understand what he was doing like even looking back as an adult with 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 me and it might have just been the the state i was in um, you know, I hit my head on the steering wheel. I bent it, and uh, instead of me going out of the the car, I, I hit, hit the steering wow. wheel. Instead of, and I hit a tree. So instead of the tree coming in, it flanked my car. I hit it dead center. It was the only tree actually in the middle of a, a a big open field. I had a huge concussion and like very very bad brain trauma as well. And I remember even <laughs> it took me a whole year to be able to think again. I felt like in school, oh, I'm sure. all of it. And that so. was before we knew as much about concussions mm-hmm. as we know now. But mm-hmm. I'm sure you, it was probably a pretty rough year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting as when I did that, I when I tried to end my own life, and I call myself a suicide survivor mm-hmm. because I feel like it, takes the power away from the idea of what suicide is there's so much stigma out there with suicide why would you ever do that how could you ever do that were you not thinking about everybody else uh what were you thinking and the quiet the answer is is i have no access to my prefrontal cortex so the our thinking you know i'm sure you know this the the way that we think our cognitive mind comes from the front of our brain, our prefrontal cortex. And, you know, when I'm in, when I'm triggered or I, I use that word very, very um, lightly or whenever I feel like I'm, I'm in a fight or flight response, my anxiety is super high, whatever it might be. And this is, this is true of everyone. <laughs> we shut off our access to our prefrontal cortex and, for me, my amygdala, which is that, you know, it's in the center of our brain and it's, it's the emotional regulation center of our brain that, that knows more than our prefrontal cortex. It is constantly looking for validation of what's going on. It's quite large because of, I think, all the trauma that I've had. So what I'm trying to say is it's not that you don't think or don't care. It's that you can't think about it. You just have no access to that part of your brain. The only access point you have is the emotional limbic system, which has free reign. And when it has been wired in kind of an obscure way, or when it's been wired from trauma, or when it's been wired through whatever neglect you call it, whatever you want to call it, or even substance abuse, it, it is wired in in a way that, that doesn't allow you to, to have like rational thought. Mm-hmm. So for me... Um, if I have high anxiety or if, if I have uh, a moment even up to this day where, 
where I don't understand what's going on, or I'm like I, I constantly use the word triggered, which who, who knows if that's the correct label or not. <laughs> well, if it works for you, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I I can I cannot get past my automatic response. So my nervous system has has created this response. When you don't feel well, you get out. And that immediately leads to suicide ideation. So there's there's like literally it just jumps. And I think that's the unfortunate thing that we don't understand about um, suicide ideation specifically is that it's really not a choice. It's not as if I'm choosing to try to think about this. Like I could be driving down the road and something it triggers me. I'm like, man, I just need to get out. And I don't even think about it. And all of a sudden I'm thinking about ways that I could maybe take my car off the road or <laughs> sitting at the dinner table and something feels threatening, whatever that is. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking about like, oh my gosh, I, I just wish I was dead. Like it's, it's awful. I'm it's sure. awful to experience. It's awful to be there. And they're, they're very, very, um, Oh, what's the word? And um, when they uh, kind of attack you, intrusive. Thank you, intrusive thoughts. Very intrusive thoughts. That, yeah. And it could be very, very benign. It could be you and I having a conversation. So I'm looking at Susie right now, and her eyes are a little wide. I think she's just trying to listen to what I'm saying. What if I'm saying something wrong? What if mm. I? What? What? It, what if? What if I'm not coming across right? You shouldn't be doing this. What ever thought? Why, why did you ever think that you could? you know, talk about something that's happening to you right now. You need to go back to talking about your past because people want to celebrate the fact that you've overcome this, not that you're still sitting in it. Mm. Like it just completely wreaks havoc on my cognitive ability to, and I'm not having that thought right now. And it could, Sure, <laughs> it very much could. And I feel like I'm constantly fighting that. I'm really appreciating how vulnerable you're being with your story and with how you still struggle that. And I think that that's something that a, a lot of people who have not struggled with any kind of mental health issue don't understand that it's not a one and done. Mm. It's not a, Oh, you take a pill, you go to a few therapy sessions and all of a sudden it's gone. It is a chronic condition that yeah. needs continual monitoring and, and adjusting like diabetes. There you go. And that's sort of what we have come to understand over the last almost six years with mm. our son is that it's not over. Yeah. It's yeah. an ongoing issue that at times is better than others. And I'm guessing that that's the case with you or there are times that you're not fighting those intrusive thoughts? I don't know. Is that mm. correct? I'm. I shouldn't assume anything. Yeah, there's there's so much in there. I so appreciate how you likened the mental health to a physical physiological, you know, ailment that we all are very aware of, diabetes, because it's not as if again diabetic. You know, if you if you have diabetes, you've chosen that. There are things right. that you can. You sometimes your predisposition. Sometimes it just happens, and there's two different types and everything else like that. We're very aware. Or cancer. Or things of that nature, we're very aware of that because, right. oh man, cancer! I'm so sorry. I, I, what can I do? How can I be there for you? And that must be awful. And um, I feel like I have cancer that I live with every day that nobody gets to see because it's not physical. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's hidden. It is hidden. It's definitely hidden. 
Um, you asked, yeah, there are periods where it feels a little bit more um, intense and then other periods where it doesn't, like the frequency doesn't feel quite as fast. Amplitude has kind of calmed down a little bit. Uh, let me back up just a touch. So uh, for years and years and years, I have been a mental health advocate and telling suicide survivor story. And I've been on several podcasts talking about that. I've done it, you know, live talks. I've talked to people around, you know, the country around this. I'm talking to Garmin here pretty soon on suicide awareness and uh, actually tomorrow. <laughs> and yeah, and it's, it's, it's just unbelievable because to me, I had this in, like very strong-willed mental plug band-aid over everything that had happened. So when I decided that I wanted to live, I just I stopped listening to all the music I was listening to, stopped hanging out with all the friends, got completely out of drugs, like just did just a complete 180. I just decided it's over. And that is one of the superpowers that <laughs> I tend to have is if I decide something, I just do it. Uh, it's the same flex though. So the same flex that I, I utilize to do that is the same flex that I utilize to get through incredibly hard races to get through the day. And um, it comes from the idea of just trying to hold on every single day. And that sometimes can be overwhelming. So for years, I basically had this, uh, we'll call it, we'll call it a, a mental arsenal of, of ways, maybe even gymnastics, of ways around SI or trying to, to help myself. I need to preface all of this by I, I've been on like countless medications. I've been talking to so many different counselors, different types of modalities from EMDR to, um, you know, just cognitive therapy to looking at, I mean, all, all I mean, diff, like uh, different types of, of rewriting, rewriting the brain. I can't remember some of them. I've sure. been to some incredible specialists and people that have helped, trauma specialists, people mm -hmm. that have helped. So it's not as if like I, I haven't gone through a lot. Right. That has been helpful in some degree. And what I found super helpful for a long time was the idea to to kind of keep moving, to like go and prove to myself that I can get through hard things on a day to day basis, do triathlon and that type of stuff. And then I poured into everyone around me, just like completely gave everything. So I'm a empath. So what's that, that? So yeah, empath. So that means so you, you hear that term around and people throw it around like ah, I have an empath, I'm an empath, and that's like okay, I can have empathy and I can kind of understand where you're coming through. So I'm, I'm I actually can feel other people's emotions. So I will literally take on other people's emotions and sometimes without even knowing it. So like I might go home and my wife Trisha, she's awesome, and sometimes I might go home and she might be having a bad day or just not feeling well and I'll take that on as mine and I know that that's actually part of a response from my childhood and that's one way to manage emotions because if I know that you're angry then I know that I need to be very very careful and maybe there's something that I can do to to help you feel better so you don't hurt me because you learned that mm -hmm. at a young age yep. from your father yeah that was what you were basically told yeah and other things too and and like that that's really really um incredible that i developed that skill set 
and it's really, really uh, challenging. Absolutely. So what happens a lot of times is I, I'm learning now to have more control over it. I still don't have more control over it, and I understand what's happening now. So I'm trying to decide, is that mine or yours or yours or mine and figuring out who's who. And I've been talking to other people that specialize in that specific idea, and that's been life-changing. And so why that is important is because it complicates my feelings. And I have done this for so long that like, I will sit down with somebody and talk to them about everything in their life. And some people will come up to me. It's so crazy. People will come up to me off the street and just tell me their life story. Uh, we were walking into my son's uh, swim meet the other day, and a lady stopped me literally when we were like at the missions and told us she spent like five minutes unloading problems that she's having. And, and you didn't know no, her? No, don't know no, her. Don't know she her. She didn't know your story. Don't know, no, doesn't know me from, yeah, I don't like, wow. no idea who I am. This happens all the time. I've had people literally stop in gas stations, get out of their car and come talk to me. It's unreal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's unreal. I can tell you like story after story. And I, and I can do this and I can choose to do this. And a lot of times, and over the years, I put myself in front of people and take it, take it on. Like I just, I allow myself to do that. And it's only recently that I've like probably in the last year that I've realized that I'm actually um, literally taking it from you. Like you can almost physically feel. Correct. Like if I had a coat on and you took that coat off of me and put it on you. Correct. And I can actually feel the transfer. So I could feel when somebody else is coming to me and then they unload and then they feel better. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I feel better. I feel it transfer from them to me. So I will feel that emotion, whatever it is, come to me. And I've been doing this since I, I and since I can't remember, right? And uh, <laughs> so what I've noticed is uh, I've, I've had a lot less resiliency to be able to do that uh, lately. Because if someone's unloading and they feel better and you are taking it on yourself, you're not feeling better. You're feeling worse. So the trick, I think, is to learn how to, for me personally, would be to learn how to to not take it in and to set it down. And I think that I can over time. But yes, a lot of times people might feel better and then I'll probably feel worse for a while. And it's physically and emotionally exhausting. So I've done this, and that's that's kind of what I did. Is I poured in everybody else, allowed myself to be there for everyone else, and I have an incredible triathlon team that I get to oversee. I have a lot of different people that I get to coach. Like I said, I speak. And uh, uh, just under two years ago, I was out for a bike ride with a friend of mine and got nailed by a car, and uh, it really messed me up. So physically, it wasn't, quote-unquote, that bad, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, you get hit by a car and say how bad that is. <laughs> well, right. And, and so a lot of people might say, oh, it's not even that bad. And, you know, I tore my meniscus, which still gives me tra- problems mm-hmm. now. And some bruised ribs and, you know, a bunch of bruised this, that. And my muscles are all jacked up here and there. And um, it completely debrided any wound, like I told you I had a bandage, it, it completely debrided all those wounds and those scars that were never healed from all of the trauma when I was a kid were, were back. And mm. uh, since then, 
I have been in constant fight or flight literally for almost two years trying to navigate the world where my emotional self feels like it's back in that house um, <laughs> every single day wow. and trying to figure out how to um, now live in this new world where I don't feel safe and my superpower of being able to flex that to get through races is not there. And the coping mechanisms that used to be there are no longer fulfilling. And wow. <laughs> like really being challenged to go back and deal with that trauma. Are you in therapy presently working on that? So I'm looking through different aspects and I continue to reach out to different people. And this is so important that, um, and I'm so glad I get to share this right now, is that... Um, like I've really been struggling in, in a way that I never knew would be possible. So the same way that I felt when I was 16 is pretty much how I felt, feel every day. The only difference now is I have perspective mm. and I kind of understand what's going on and, and I don't feel like I have to go through with what the thought process goes. I understand what's happening and that it doesn't have to be true. And it's very, very emotionally draining to the point where some days it's hard to, to do much us other than hold on. And it's really confusing because the slightest of mistrust, I just shut down and it's over. So I've been talking to a bunch of different therapists and like working with a lot of different people. And part of it is, I think, is the journey is figuring out what is right for each individual and I by no means given up, but sometimes I get confused as to where the journey is. Sure. I think the biggest thing that um, has been very hopeful lately is, oh my gosh, I've never set boundaries in my life. <laughs> mm. Like I've never advocated for me. I've never allowed myself to look into um, actually doing stuff for me. Yeah, I'll do stuff to, for performance. I'll do stuff to better myself. But as far as actually looking at things that like some, some people might do for themselves, I don't do it until mm. very recently. Uh, oh my gosh, I don't have a relationship with me. <laughs> like mm. I don't let that person come out that feels like they're super unsafe because I don't want people to know or that that's, you know, and it feels super inauthentic to who I am on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah, it's been just unreal. It really has been. How has this affected your relationship with your wife and your children? I'm so glad yeah, you asked that too. It's been really hard for her, um, very hard for her. And, um, you know, she's having to learn how to talk to me and learn how to not, like, it's not up to her not to trick, but, like, trying to talk to me is really challenging uh, because I misinterpret or I have this idea that I'm bad or that I'm wrong all the time. So when she's trying to help me, like all I hear is is how wrong or bad or insignificant or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and I know that's not real. <laughs> so it's been really hard for us. And it, it's been something that we've been working through. And, you know, just today when we're leaving, she's, she's like, I'm just so proud of you. This weekend's been huge because like you told me when you wanted to, 
like go to this play. You told me like what day would work. You you advocated for yourself and you got sleep here. This is what you did. Like look at what you're doing. And I mean, she's on my side for sure. And as far as my kids are concerned, I know that they felt a shift uh, too. Uh, and I'm sure that they've they've noticed that I've been very, very distant. And that's hard for me because then I have shame on the shame. So I guess that would be something to talk about too, is the biggest thing that for me is shame and guilt. I have enough of that already. So anytime that's reinforced, it's very, very challenging for me to <laughs> to get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And shame is a word that I hear often people using mm-hmm. in the mental health struggle, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. So to hear you say that there's shame upon shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So shame is is the lowest frequency. Shame and guilt are the lowest frequencies. And I've just recently learned that. They sit at 40 hertz <laughs> as far in our body, as okay. far as where that feels. Whereas as joy or, or um, even higher than that, um, the word is, is evading me right now. Uh, I'll tell you if I think of it. Then sure. those those are like the highest frequencies. So to jump from from shame or guilt to joy is just unrealistic. There has to be anger in there. There has to be sadness. There has to be other feelings. And I think that that's the unfortunate part of some of the culture that we live in is that you're either you know happy, joyful, or not. So when you ask somebody, how are you, what do you say? Fine. Or well, good. good. <laughs> and that's just it. And Which if you is not always the case. Right. If you say anything other than that, either they weren't really asking or they look at you cross-eyed like you're a weirdo. So you have to be good. So that's how I feel mm. a lot of times. It's like, and I don't feel like that. So there's shame on the shame there. So shame in general is this feeling of that like not only did you do wrong you are wrong Mm. like something in you is wrong so if you feel shame on something let's say you feel shame on i don't know breaking a dish or something like that shame on you for for doing that the idea would be that like you must feel have penance for what you just did and there must be a consequence that's kind of how I distinguish that between guilt. Okay. Guilt would be like, oh, I did something wrong to you, and I don't feel good about that. So when you have both shame and guilt, and then I have shame on my own shame. So that would be like, I feel horrible. I feel really bad at myself, bad about myself, and I feel bad about feeling bad about myself. Like that's just awful. <laughs> mm. Or like you know, you're at a place where they're trying to help or in a spiritual um spiritual place and they're trying to to console you and and what they ultimately say lands as shame on shame that you shouldn't feel this way the word should always imply implies shame you shouldn't feel this way because you know god has a special plan for you and then i feel like well why don't i feel like that i feel shame on the shame does that make sense absolutely yeah yeah which is even more awful right and why those types of phrases are not helpful to someone who is struggling. Correct. It's not as if I'm choosing. No. If I, if I could, I, I guarantee you I would not choose this. There, there's nothing. There's nothing that I want other than to, to be healed from this. 
Let's go back again in time to after you left your home, your childhood Mm -hmm. home. How old were you when you left your childhood home? When did you start out on your own and start finding your own therapists and your own healing journey from what was really controlled by your dad, it sounds like? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your, your grace and leading. This is challenging for the talk about, like, you know. It's I just, can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so um, I was, I went to Johnson County Community College for a couple of years. So I actually stayed back at the house during that because I didn't have the um, financial backing or ability to do that myself. And then took out a huge student loan to go to K-State. So pretty much after that, when I was in my 20s, early 20s is probably when I started to take ownership for my own mental health and and figure out, navigate that a little bit more as a quote-unquote adult. One of the interesting aspects of that, and I, I say this a lot, is is uh, we're talking about the brain and the right and left hemisphere. So left hemisphere is, little, we, all, we all know, is more cognitive, right? It's a little more creative. And those don't actually come together. They don't have their final um, bifurcation until you're 25. So even then, like in your early 20s, how are you supposed to have access to both? And it wasn't until really my probably mid to late 20s and even into 30s where I really understood what was going on, that I was misdiagnosed, that I, I uh, needed to, to take alternate treatments. And in, in my 30s, all throughout my 30s, I thought I had it figured out. Like, oh, I'm good. I've, quote unquote, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and, I've fixed it. Yeah, I've fixed it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. And um, turns out, uh, I need to go back and heal that trauma. In your 30s, then, did you start that process of healing the trauma? Not really. So I would have, and that's another thing, too, is I've had bouts throughout my adult life where there might be a season of, we'll call it a week up to, I can remember it's lasting up to six six months in 2016, where it was a little bit more challenging. So I'd felt really dark, really down. Um, I'm highly affected by light. So this is a hard time of the year for me. Um, when the sun goes down these days, it's just awful. Even like every day, it's just like, oh my gosh, the sun's down, now what? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, so in my 30s, like I did some things and I really felt like I had it under control. I really felt like I had it and I knew what I was doing, if that makes sense to you. And again, I, I was leaning so hard into helping everyone else God has a special plan for you is what I was told. And that to me meant your purpose on life is to share your story with as many people as you come across. Your purpose on life is to be there for everyone else. And I've never been there for me. I think that's the missing piece is finally I'm taking the time to look at me and like, what about me? What about Josh? Like, what about love for yourself? And finding that love for myself is, is so hard to access. It's quite unbelievable. Well, I'm not a therapist or a doctor or anything, but just listening to you, it sounds like you've had so much guilt and shame that you turned that ability to love yourself off or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Sure. But sure. it makes me really sad for you because I think Josh is pretty amazing. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> and yeah. the fact that you're sitting here being willing to share your, you know, your deep personal struggles is incredible. Yeah, thank you. And I think it says a lot about you. Yeah. Hmm. But then I see your eyes and I see, I do, I can see that there's, yeah. yeah. The blocks. So she's mm. looking at me, like she's, I'm looking across from her right now and like I know she can feel it. I mean, my, my posture is set. So I was like crossing my arms and mm. whatnot. It's hard for me to let that stuff in. Yeah. And it's, it's, and I know that. That's that's the thing I think that um, if we can zoom out just a second about mental health, any mental health, whether it be anxiety, depression, um, eating disorder, addiction, there there's there's not as if I don't recognize what's going on. It's it's that there are things that are in the way of my ability to to to, to understand, and I emotionally have no access. Like cognitively, it's a block. It's it's you know what I mean. It's yeah. It's like, like there's something in your brain that's not connecting appropriately. Correct. And for some people, that is a, a biochemical imbalance. And oftentimes, like medication is completely necessary if not warranted. And I think that you know sometimes it, it has to do with finding a therapist and and that. And sometimes it has to do with other things and. I think that what for anybody's mental health journey, it's it's figuring this out for us. I think understanding that you are an overcomer even when you're overcoming it. I was saying this, and this is kind of a newer revelation that you know I'm 40, um, and I'm not great at math. I know there's about 365 days in the year. So if you multiply by that, and somebody can tell you that, I don't know, carry the one, we'll call it, we'll call it 15,000, I don't even know, 15,000 days, there was one day when I chose not to stay. Mm. There was one day when, like, it won, quote unquote, and it didn't. Like, I'm still here. So for me, there's hope in that because every single day that goes past, like, I'm still here. And that's a win. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. So every day that we go through, no matter how hard it is or was or what it felt like, or if we relapsed or if we had those thoughts come back or whatever happened, like we're still here. We have another day ahead of us that it, it could happen. Like we could heal. And that's the hardest thing is uh, finding hope when you feel hopeless, mm-hmm. when it starts to get so dark that you forget that there's light when the storms have been around for so long that you don't remember what the sun looks like. I think that's when it gets very, very challenging. And that's when people in our lives are necessary to hold our hands and help guide us and surround us with the love that we might not be able to see. You referenced medication, and you had said that when you were a teenager that your dad gave you different medications and you were on different things, but then you said later you stopped taking everything. Are you presently taking any medication? I'm not. I've been on and off medications throughout my whole life, not okay. just my teenage life. So so currently, um, I am not and I'm not diametrically opposed to them. Um, so here's a big share. Um, 
about, I don't know, I'll call it six, seven weeks ago, I kind of felt like I was in a triage type of situation where I had to do something different. And one of my best friends and I were talking and he and I both agreed that um, I might need to go in somewhere. So I tried out a place and I'm just going to keep it to myself where it was. Mm -hmm. And I walked in there and I was there for a couple hours and they did a, they did a whole, you know, consultation and evaluation. And then they, they, they gave me what their solutions were. So uh, one thing that I rely heavily on is, is my own intuition and I don't have as clear of access to it these days it's still there I mean it used to be so crystal clear where I could just know and these days it's just not quite as clear and I was really frustrated because I didn't know what to do so that's why I decided to reach out and ask other people to help me because I don't know what's going on anymore and I really don't want anything bad to happen and so um it was so great though because uh I realized that this is not the place for me and it was a hard no and I knew that almost immediately, like walking up to the place, but I, just, I gave it a shot anyway. And then it was a hard no. The reason I say that is because I feel like we all have the ability to understand and heal and figure out what we need for each other, for ourselves. And sometimes a no is the great a great way to figure out where to go. Sure. If we don't know where to go, if we know what not isn't going to work, then that's that's a step. That's a mm-hmm. step. So, but yeah, to, to answer your question. Um, I just really haven't found anything or anyone that uh, I feel like can present me with what is fully needed for me to clearly heal. Okay. And, and I'm you're still, still working. looking. I'm still working on it. Yeah, I haven't still closed looking. off at all. So I have some other newer things that I'm, I'm looking at right now. And uh, I'm excited about those, quite honestly. And... But I think that's the important part piece is not to close off. And I really believe that the trauma is is the thing that I need to look at personally. And you said you were misdiagnosed when you were younger. And then at some point, the diagnosis changed to post-traumatic stress. So that's the thing is I was diagnosed as bipolar. Okay. So bipolar 2. And that has kind of rapid mood fluctuations. Mm-hmm. So I was given a lot of mood stabilizers like Depico or um, Lamictal, or I can just go through them all. And nothing ever really seemed to work. And what? And this is this is not clinical. This hasn't been clinically um, diagnosed for myself. It's just more. If you really look at what these things are, it makes a lot more sense that. Um, I was in a very traumatic <laughs> environment where I didn't know what my reality was and my mood would change based upon what was happening at home and I didn't have any capacity to do work at school and I was depressed and all of it, it just it just wasn't a bio- biochemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. It presented itself as such because somebody decided that that was what it was when I was 15, 16 years old. And then it followed me for the rest of my life until I said, this is BS. This is not what is going on. And I actually, I started feeling a lot better, quote unquote, after I started stopped using all those 
medications. Mm-hmm. Well, so, if it's not the right medication for the right problem, it's not. It might make you feel worse. That's part of it too, but yeah. When you became a triathlete, was that something that you started because you thought it would help help your your mental health? I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I started lifting weights right after I was, right after, a little bit before I, um, the, the suicide attempt. And then I got a little more serious into it. And a friend, same friend, Paul, it's <laughs> like, you, Josh, you should, you should buy a bike and we'll start riding a little bit. So I, I kind of rode a little bit of mountain biking and then he convinced me to start running. And then when I was 20, I decided I want to run a marathon and asked him, we did that. And I kind of got hooked on endurance sports then. And then started riding more and more road bicycles. That's when Lance Armstrong was big. And then when I was in college, right out of, right out, right out of college, a friend of mine was like, hey, Josh, you should try a triathlon. So I did that. And what I really think happens as I look back is, is it was a co- and is a coping mechanism. And here's what happens to me is, is personally, if I keep my mind occupied, like us talking right now, things are a lot easier for me. Because I'm focused on this one thing and I'm, I'm focused on this stuff. As soon as I get out of this, like my mind's going to repeat everything I said, everything you said, every look you gave me, everything that like I think I could have done better or worse, and it's going to berate me. My inner critic is so strong. Okay, so what happens when I'm doing triathlon or like training or whatnot, it allows me to get away from that in a way because it takes this anxiety of mine and puts it into into motion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally. Yes, actually. And I can dispel it. And trauma sits in our in our in our bodies as well. And it needs to be moved and it needs to be worked through. Yoga will tell you that and everybody will tell you that. Like sometimes like the, the trauma therapy in, you know involves that. So what I noticed is that I can suffer better than most people. Because <laughs> triathlons and running a marathon, that's not fun. I mean, like... <laughs> You're like looking at me like, what's wrong with you? No, but I know that there are people who love them. And I mean, I know for myself personally, and I do not do triathletes, uh-huh. triathlons, but I, I like to exercise because it absolutely helps my mental health. That's it. Yeah. And I can picture, if you will, that when you're really struggling, going out and running 26 miles, yeah, that probably does because it gives you something else to focus on, right? Sure. Is that what you're saying? So, yes. And I think for me, so triathlon, swim, bike, run, and then Ironman, is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then the marathon at the end of that. <laughs> and I've done 10 of those. Oh my god! And a bunch of different others. I've done over 100 triathlons, like 130 at this point. I've been saying 100 triathlons for like five years now. So <laughs> and it keeps adding. <laughs> You're probably like 200. <laughs> Who now. knows? But no, I just stopped counting. And wow. So so for me, um, so I've I've really contemplated this and and tried to understand what am I doing and why am I doing it with triathlon and I want that success and I want, I want, I love the lifestyle. I love the ability to go out and do these types of things and be an athlete and be motivating and motivated by everything that's going on. And I've been gifted with this ability to do these things. And I coach as part of my, it's mm-hmm. part of my career. And if I really look deep, 
what I'm essentially doing is is um, running from quote unquote everything. Mm. So it's it's kind of an escape type of fuel sometimes, and it also this is probably the more important allows me to go back and remember that I can choose my uncomfortable, I can choose my hard, and I can choose to stay, I can choose to keep going. And that's kind of what it's all about is one foot in front of the other, continue to go, allow yourself to get through into the finish line. And what's just nuts is the, the again, the same flex, I keep calling it flex, the same, the same resiliency or um, determination, the grit that I utilize to get through a day-to-day whenever I'm not feeling well is the same thing that I use to get through triathlon or to get through those those things. And it's celebrated. Mm-hmm. So listen to this. So the, <laughs> the thing that's celebrated that people are like, oh my gosh, this guy's gone to the world championship. Oh my gosh, this guy is incredible. Oh my gosh, is actually the same thing that defeats me like on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And it's and people don't want to see the other part. They love to celebrate sure. the Josh that's, you know, doing that. But if I'm not feeling well, I mean, it feels like maybe this is not true. It feels like you don't want to see this, like you don't like this part of me because like it's just, but it's the same thing. Mm. You know what I mean? And what I've noticed in the past year is that I don't have the ability to tap into that right now in physical sport. Because I'm so, my bandwidth is just shot every day. It's just shot from just trying to get through the day. Um, okay. <laughs> it's like I have no capacity to do anything outside of what it is in front of me. And sometimes that is too overwhelming. Um, and yet <laughs> I function and yet somehow I get through it, right? Are you training right now? Are sort you- of. For me, like you might look at me on schedule and be like, this guy's nuts. And for me, it's like. It's so loose. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to get back to doing more of what you were doing before the last year or two? I want to heal. Mm-hmm. So whatever that takes. I would give it up at this point. Like You'd if walk it, away. If it, if it meant that – I wouldn't walk away from the sport. I would walk away from um, the level that I'm at uh, if it meant that I would heal. Uh, I'm not convinced that it is or not, but that's, sure. and that says a lot, I think is, is I need, I need to be able to capitulate that if that's holding me back. Um, I'm at that point where it's just, sure. I don't think it's there cause it does still give me joy. It's just challenging to be able to put any energy into anything other than fighting through the intrusive thoughts mm-hmm. and the feelings, the overwhelming, like that's the thing too. Is I, I just can't stress that enough. Is like if you're in if you're in a trauma response or if you're in your own amygdala, which grows by the way. Every time we have trauma, your amygdala grows and grows and grows. The bigger it is, the more control it has. And that's the thing with chronic. So chronic PTSD or chronic CPSD is is the idea that happened multiple times over and over and over and over again. In those environments, like a lot of times, soldiers come back from this. They're constantly emotionally, maybe not a flashback, but an emotional flashback of where they were. And like, what am I supposed to do? Like, my dad's yelling at me right now. Like, he's not. He's dead. Right. <laughs> you could be sitting across from me and something that you said, un- and it's nothing that you did wrong, 
whatever that means, again, whatever that means, <laughs> is something that, that you didn't know that you said, it could have been like triggering enough to where like now because I'm always on fight or flight, now I'm in that response. Mm. And now you're talking to me, I have no idea what you're saying. You've done such a good job of putting into words. Thank you. I think what uh, what you must feel and I think that that's one of the really hard things about mental health and mental illness. I think that it is really hard for people to put into words sometimes what it feels like. And I have talked to other people who have had a lot of suicidal ideation. My son describes it pretty well. I was asking. Yeah. yeah. So he said he didn't want to die. He just wanted the pain to end. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, death seems like the only way out. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed another 40-year-old man, and he said something to the effect of, I was just done. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be done. I wanted to get out of the car in the middle of traffic mm -hmm. and be done. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. I asked him this question because I think for people who don't know what those intrusive thoughts are like, someone would look at a person like you and be like, you are incredible. You are incredibly accomplished. You're very articulate. I don't know your wife and kids, but I'm sure they're amazing. Mm -hmm. And think, wow, why why would you want to leave your wife and kids? Mm -hmm. And what he told me, do you want me to tell you what he told me? Sure. Yeah. So what he said was, I wasn't thinking about that at mm -hmm. all. That's not how the brain was working. Correct. And you describing those brain mm -hmm. things that I'm not very good at. I'm not no very worries. good at science. I think that's what he was saying. Mm -hmm. Like the, something's not connecting properly. Something's not working properly. Yeah. And that a person who is experiencing that suicidal ideation is not capable of thinking, well, what is this going to do? to my wife or my kids or fill in the blank. I think that's it. And if I may, for me personally, it's the thoughts are perverted in a way, and I chose that word on purpose, in a way that it doesn't it doesn't follow logic. And like I was talking about with the brain chemistry and the brain mm -hmm. neural pathways. And I'm very aware of of everyone around me and what's going on and that's part of who I am. And during those times, it's you get so sick. I get so sick that I lose access to what that could actually mean for them, or could actually mean for anyone. And you can call it selfish. You can call it what? No, I know she's shaking her head. No, you can call it whatever you want. I'm just saying the the thing about it is for me is. It's not that I don't think about them. I, I don't think about what the actual impact could be. I'm convinced by the thoughts, the, the little inner narrator 
the the guy that's always telling me all the things I'm doing wrong. So I have this little person that I've I've pretty much um, brought to animation, you know, personified in my own mind and my inner critic. He he will sh- like point arrows at me and tell me everything I'm doing wrong and show me all the ways I'm doing wrong and like put them in my face and pretty much laugh at me. At one point, I described it as I was writing a journal where the, like I have a, a journal narrator and he'll he'll you know mock me whenever I do anything that I, I I'm wrong and he'll take me and he'll put me underwater and just when I think I'm about to drown, he'll bring me back up and let me gasp and laugh at me how I'm crying and then put me under again. And just like continue to do this process and then find different ways for everything else around me to feel like it's like I don't have no control. I'm not safe. I'm, you know, I'm not worth anything. And I start to believe it. And that's the unfortunate part because that's not true. It's like somebody that is abused or emotionally abused. Like you've heard about uh, domestic abuse where somebody will start small and try to tell you that, oh, you know, you just need to be around me all the time. Oh, your friends don't like you. Oh, I just can't, you know, stand the thought of being around you. And then you're in the house and all of a sudden you're getting hit. And like, how did that even happen? Well, (laughs) it wasn't because like you didn't have access to, you know, everything else. It's because you started to believe it. Mm. Like you start to believe those thoughts that are constantly in your head you know, one of the things that I tell people is like, you believe everything you tell yourself. And mm. that's, that's very true. And we, we, you hear that idea too, is like, whether you think it's right or you think it, whatever, whether you think it's right or wrong, or whether you think it's real or not, it's true. And whether you think you can or you can't, it's true. Like all those, those cute quotes that do mean a lot. Well, what if the thought in your, in, and it's not even the thought, it's the emotion is telling you that you're not worthy. And that's repeated in your head over and over and over again. Yeah, I could tell myself I'm worthy, I'm worthy, I'm my, you know. But if I don't believe it, then it doesn't do anything for me. You know what I mean? So, like, no positive affirmation is going to overcome that ability. Yes, it's important, and yes, I do it. <laughs> yes, I tell myself I'm okay, I'm okay. That's actually the mantra I was going through my other day. Just, like, four days ago, I'm sitting there trying to work. I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Just constantly, I'm okay, I'm okay. Because I had to get myself to calm down. Like, my heart rate's out of control. My vagus nerve is... Not able, I'm not able to eat. Like it's just everything's bombarded. So, <laughs> like, what am I supposed to think during those times? Like, I can't think about anything other than get away, get out. We are, we are actually programmed for that. That's our survival mechanism. Right. Like evolution has programmed us over years and years, thousands of years. Whether whatever you believe, we've been here at least four thousand years, <laughs> and like that. You can't get away from the biology of if there's a big scary tiger that walks up to you, you're gonna run. Right. And it's not, oh my gosh, I hope my 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 family makes it. What are they doing right now? You know, are they gonna are they gonna be okay with me if I run? No, you run. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on. It's like I'm running. The perversion though is I must die. The perversion is you're not worth anything. So your your escape route from this big scary lion is to actually jump off this thousand foot cliff to your death. That's your only escape. Mm. Or think about, um, you've heard about in 9-11 and when people were up on top of the buildings and there's fire coming at them and they have no, they're either going to get burned to death yeah. or they jump. I feel like there's a fire there. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. So I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry my family and, and, and kids. Like that, I can't think about you 
because I am literally programmed not to. I think that's the difference. That's the call though, is to find stability and find access and grounding and like bring yourself back to be able to understand that you don't, that's not your reality. That's not true. Right. Like that's, that's, that's where, that's where the work comes, I think. So for me, that's the thing is like, what can we do to bring people back? What can you do to recenter yourself and understand what reality is that there is no fire there is no tiger yeah like you're not my dad you're not you're not in my face you're not spitting in my face so much that i have to like shut down right now Mm. like you care and and i mean that's what it's that's what it's about for me that was so well articulated that's really going to help people understand what it must feel like because i do think that there is a massive lack of understanding from people who do not experience those types of thoughts. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do is to help educate. Yeah. Thank you, by the way, for everything that you're doing. Oh, thank you for everything you're doing. But to help through stories, through people's personal experiences, help people understand what it is like to be in the middle of some of these battles. Mm. And what you just said was so well-constructed that that is going to help people. Your whole story is going to help people. Mm. And you being willing to share it is huge. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. I've watched your face as you've talked through some of these painful, painful things. And... I want you to know that those bad thoughts are not true. Sure. Sure. And I just want to tell you that. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So crazy. So here's a good example. Good. Ha. Bad. Good. Those things have polarizing effects in my brain, or and they mean a lot to me. So language and semantics matter in my in my mind in my world. So like bad thoughts have a connotation of negative. No, so this is not uh, pointing at you. I'm just thinking, I think it's cool to share about like in a moment, what might be triggering and why somebody might like shut down or, or not be there anymore. Yeah. So bad to me is something that mess, means that I'm doing something wrong. So what is meant as a compliment in my mind, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes mm. can be misconstrued as, see, you're bad. Mm. Those are bad thoughts that you're having. You can't share those. They're mm. bad. It's just unbelievable the mental, the mental exhaustion. Like, you know, how, how much I have to like, I use the word gymnastics. I might use it again. Mm-hmm. The mental gymnastics that I have to go through in order to go back to, oh, wait, this is what she actually meant. <laughs> yeah. Versus like what, and it's because I'm in a constant fight or flight. It's, sure. it's quite unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I absolutely didn't mean... I didn't hear it as such. Okay. Yeah. It just yeah. presented itself as a talking point. It's no, just I appreciate that. very simple where you're like, I'm going to give this guy some praise for everything mm-hmm. he's just done. And then sometimes you might be doing that with a loved one or a friend yeah. or someone that you care about, and then they don't hear it. And it's not because you did anything that caused that. It's just, it just can be really, really challenging. So how do you speak to it? And mm-hmm. that's kind of... That's kind of where you find yourself. Sure. And that's where my wife finds herself a lot of times. And 
not even trying to like she's trying to help and I know that I know that yeah (laughs) and still it doesn't like it feels different yeah Mm. it's unbelievable is your wife in any kind of therapy or counseling yeah okay yeah good (laughs) because I mean I know just parenting a child who struggled struggles and has had some really dark times that was really important for me. Oh, absolutely. And for my husband. And that's okay. It, it is okay. Yeah. You know, I did this I did this um, special for NAMI. Mm-hmm. So on It's Okay to Not Be Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it or not. It's, on, it's cool. It's on YouTube. It's, in, it's about a four-minute uh, video on okay. it. And I'll put it in the show notes, too. <laughs> That'd be great. It's a really neat video. Okay. So... A friend of mine, Andrew White, uh, put it together. He's unbelievable, and his team, um, they flew him from California, had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Wow. It's high, high, uh, you know, videography. Unbelievable. Okay. And anyway, it's okay to not be okay. It was the message. And it's also okay to not be okay when somebody you love is not okay. Mm. And unfortunately, like that person so for me, I'm a, a source of stability for a lot of people, my wife included. When she no longer can get stability from me, where is she supposed to go? Like you have to be able to allow yourself that grace to to seek that. Absolutely. And then that's part of it. It's not it's not a bad thing. No, it's not. There's the bad word again. Yep. <laughs> bad. We need to get rid of that voc- that word out of our vocabulary. Josh, is there anything that we have not talked about or touched on that you want to make sure and share i'm thinking i don't believe so i think the biggest thing you know if i could zoom out to back to the hundred thousand foot view it really is a journey and we're all on this journey and i think that we're all struggling and the more that we can be authentic to ourselves and share who we are and where we are, the less power, again, the darkness is going to have. There really is no darkness. There's only absence of light. I've been really into astronomy lately mm. <laughs> and just the idea of, of, of um, uh, quantum physics. And if you go way, way deep into that, the, the particles like photons and the way that they interface with, with the entire universe there, there isn't anything other than light. There's only absence of it, even in the midst of a black hole, hmm. which could actually be the center of a new, like, universe. It's just quite unbelievable. Wow, but anyway, that's way over my no, head. No, but like but the point is, I see where you're going. Yeah, the point is that um, anything that we can do in our own journeys, I think, to bring ourselves healing and to surround ourselves with other people and to become more vulnerable with each other I think is is absolutely paramount and that um I love the idea because you know I am a triathlete work with triathletes and athletes and um there's usually a finish line there always is a finish line at a race and uh even when you can't see the finish line even when you think you can't go you know, another mile what's one thing you can do Uh, for me I'll break it down to maybe I'll run to the light pole or maybe I'll run to the curb, and sometimes it's just step by step. And when that becomes overwhelming, can I breathe? So 
when things feel overwhelming, like how do we keep going even when we don't see the finish line? It's just one step. It doesn't have to be the best step. It's just the next step. That's really good. The next step. I like that. Mm. Josh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. For your willingness to share and help educate and to give hope and shine a light where there is a lack of light. Yeah, there you go. I got it. (laughs) Even though I'm not good at science. So thank you so much for being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. Yeah, thank you, Susie. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.